This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Rob Tombrella, pastor at Grace Church. If you don't mind, take your Bibles and turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Your Bible, your device, whatever, Revelation chapter 3. We are in the uh, last uh, message uh, in a series called Seven Letters, and we are in chapter 3, verse 14 through 22. My name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors as well. I want to say welcome and Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, My assumption on a Sunday after the holidays like this is that there are many people probably that are tired, and you're probably tired from a number of things. Maybe you're tired from travel. Um, Maybe you're tired from the kids. Uh, you know, maybe you're tired from chocolate. I mean, can, is that even possible? It's like I was eating a Rolo yesterday and I was like, why am I eating this? This is horrible. I'm tired of chocolate and all the sweets and stuff. Maybe you're looking at the demands of work that's coming down the road, that project that didn't go away over the holidays and now it's staring at you and the demands of all that and so you're already tired. Maybe you sat all day and made up all these resolutions and as you really thought about accomplishing them, you're already tired from thinking about all of your, your resolutions. And so uh, there's different ways that as a, as a preacher, as a pastor, I could approach that kind of tiredness. For that kind of tiredness, I could preach from Matthew 11, a glorious promise where Jesus has come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that would be true, and that would be glorious. And for somebody in here today, that's exactly the kind of tiredness that you're experiencing. And so you need that kind of promise for that kind of tiredness. But the question for today is much more serious. It's a much more serious kind of tiredness. And this kind of tiredness affects all of us in various ways, if we're honest with ourselves. And it's this, what do you do if you're tired of coming to God? You know, you're supposed to come to God. You know, the promise is there. You know, he's saying, come, But you're tired of coming to God. Maybe you're tired of trusting God. Tired of the things of God. Things like prayer and and Bible reading and attending church or community group or reaching out to my neighbor like I should has just become tiresome to you. I mean, what do you do with that? I mean, a a question that we need to have answered for us as we stare into the future of a brand new year is what do you do with that? Is there any danger in that? Is there any hope for that? And so to the tired, Jesus has a word. Jesus has a message to all of the above kind of tired. And even that kind of tired. And to all the tired, Jesus offers a whole new start in the passage that we're looking at today. The structure in Revelation 3 is very similar to all the letters almost. 
his promise comes this way. Uh, he warns first in verses 14 through 17, Jesus does. And then he goes from a warning to counseling the church in verse 18 through 19. And then he ends with promises in verse 20 through 22. Let me pray and then we'll get started here. Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear. We ask, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would cause that miracle of sight to take place in every one of our our, uh, hearts and every one of our minds here today. We need your help, Lord. We need your mercy, and we ask for it, believing that you love to give mercy to the tired. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus warns, Jesus counsels, and Jesus promises to give us a whole new start. And so let's take this step by step here. Let's look at verses 14 through 17 and see how this um, this church gets addressed by Jesus. This is, again, last church that uh, Jesus is addressing here in this, in this passage in Revelation. Here's how it starts. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, that's our church we're looking at, write this. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So Jesus, before he speaks directly to the church and all the issues in the church, he first announces who he is. He first begins with his character and he gives three powerful images of who he is. He says, I'm the amen. The amen has has rich uh, history in the Bible. It's not just something, you know, old school Baptist guys like me say. It's actually uh, describes the strongest affirmation that you can possibly give, according to the Bible, is the amen, the amen. It, it means as much as, as you can think it to mean, I'm with you. I resonate. Undoubtedly, yes. It means yes in the strongest sense of the word. And Jesus starts with that. I'm the amen. I don't just give an amen. I'm the yes. I am am resonating every truth about God. That's who I am. I'm not only the amen. I'm faithful and true witness. What I speak is truth. He has said some hard things to these churches, hasn't he? And he's going to say some hard things here. Jesus doesn't pull punches. He's he's not a doctor that's going to play with your diagnosis. He's a loving God who gives an accurate and true assessment of every church that he is a part of. Sometimes we think the last person that's ever going to come and visit our church on Sunday is Jesus. And we've seen, you know, Sunday after Sunday that Jesus is here. He's with us. He knows us. And when he speaks to us, it's always true and it's always faithful. And notice what else? He's the beginning of God's creation. That's not a statement about him being the creature. It's a statement about him being the creator. As Colossians describes him as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation or the firstborn over all creation. Is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And so when we read this, we're supposed to think like the promise in 2 Corinthians says, that all the promises of God in Jesus find their yes in him. All the promises find their yes right here. And so that's how he's starting. 
as he goes into a very stern warning to the church in Laodicea, he starts by saying, here's who I am. And that's going to become very important because the promises aren't going to make sense. And we're not going to believe the promises if it's not coming from a faithful and true witness. If it's not coming from the amen, if it's not coming from the beginning of God's creation, we'll start to think, well, the promise is unrealistic. It can't take place in my life. It might land on somebody else, but it's not going to land on me. And what Jesus is saying right here is no matter how unrealistic you might feel today that the promises are for you, no matter how distant you might feel from God, that there's no way that that could actually take place in my life. They will come to pass having been sealed by his death and resurrection. That's how he's starting this warning off. Well, notice what he goes on to say. I know your works. Like, uh uh-oh. He said this to other churches, and he's reminding the Laodiceans, I know you. I know you. I know your works. Here's what he knows. You are neither cold nor nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I mean, that's about as strong as it gets. I doubt if you've been a believer for many years, that's the very first time you've ever heard that phrase used or a preacher preached from that kind of passage. It's scary, isn't it? What does he mean by hot? What does he mean by cold? What does he mean by lukewarm? The imagery of Jesus, you know, spitting some, a, a church out of his mouth is, it's not, it's, it's unsettling, isn't it? It's scary. Well, what does it mean to be lukewarm? And why would Jesus prefer them cold instead of lukewarm? To the point where, He would spew them out of his mouth in verse 15 through 16. Well, I think some confusion comes when we think of only one temperature out of the three being mentioned, hot, cold, lukewarm, as being positive. So typically, we look at this with kind of the eyes of hot is good, cold is bad. Hot means I'm on fire, I'm zealous, I'm a hardworking Christian maybe, and cold means I'm an apathetic unbeliever. I'm way over here, and, and hot is like way over here. And then lukewarm is somewhere in the middle, you know. But the problem with approaching only one positive aspect to the temperatures being mentioned is that basically that would mean that Jesus is saying, I'd rather this church be in complete unbelief and in the bondage of sin than to be saved but backslidden. You guys get the problem there. So that, that creates a a dilemma. Jesus would rather somebody be, um, you know, unforgiven in a state of complete independence from God altogether and under the judgment of God than to be saved, but struggling saved, but sinning. Well, a better option is to understand Jesus to be using two positive temperature illustrations to emphasize the same truth of the danger of being lukewarm. 
So he's using illustrations that the Laodiceans are going to get. He doesn't just use one positive illustration. He's using two, both cold and hot in this passage are positive. And here's, here's why that is. You need some background about Laodicea. Laodicea of all the seven churches that we've studied together is the wealthiest. They are Silicon Valley. They're the bomb.com. They are renowned for their banking. They are renowned for their textile industry. They have this massive medical school. Everybody wants to live in Laodicea. In fact, in AD 60, it rebuilt itself from a huge earthquake and did not accept the government bailout from Rome. They said, we've got this on our own. We don't need your help. And so they were financially well off. They were well structured. They were well to do. And they invited a lot of uh, travelers into Laodicea because they were so heavy in trade and wealth. So they had everything except one really important thing. They lacked a natural water supply. They had one terrible river, the Lycus River, that, that the only water in this Lycus River was described by the people in that day as white mud. So you drink it. You get nauseous, you get sick, and uh, that's all they had. And so they did what what a lot of wealthy cities do, is that didn't stump them. That is, that's not a problem for a wealthy city. We will get our water from another place, and we'll just pipe it in. And that's exactly what they did. Way back then, they piped from six miles away through these aqueducts, these massive aqueducts, uh, all the way from a place called Hierapolis, in a place called Colossae, they piped in water into the city. Now, in Heropolis, six miles out, uh, it was known for 95-degree hot springs, rich mineral water. And so that would get piped in from Heropolis. And in Colossae, they were known for this cold, refreshing water. And it was also good for you to drink it from Colossae. But they would have to have it, again, piped in six miles across the desert. Now, what happens to either hot, you know, healing water from Hierapolis or cold, refreshing water from Colossae after it travels six miles across the desert? Well, it ends up tasting a lot like the water that they already have in, in, uh, in, uh, Laodicea. It's, it's drinkable, but it's not the best. And it still reminds you of the nauseous water that they had. So it's two points to think about here. The water that Laodicea had piped in not only didn't taste good, but it didn't serve people like it served six miles down the road. So in Hierapolis, it had healing Elements to that hot water that was rich in mineral. And in Colossae, it had refreshing elements there. But by the time it arrived in a self-sufficient, very wealthy city of Laodicea, it was lukewarm and it was unbeneficial. So here, lukewarm doesn't just mean indifferent towards God. He is saying you are indifferent towards God. But it also means they're indifferent towards the needs 
of other people around them. They have become callous. They have become lukewarm. They have become self-sufficient in their wealth and in their uh, independency as a city. And they have trickled that value down into the church to where the church is saying, I don't need anybody and I'm self-sufficient and I don't need to benefit anybody. So the church did not provide refreshing cold water to the spiritual weary around them. And the church did not provide hot healing water to the spiritually sick. And so when Jesus looks at that kind of attitude towards people and that indifference towards God, he says, I can't stomach that. We have a quote up here. We're going to put on the screen. Sam Storms puts it this way. This isn't to say they, talking about the Laodiceans, weren't a passionate people, only that the focus of their dedication was something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. They probably burned with desire, just not for him. They were pretty ramped up about a lot of different things, probably in the city of Laodicea. But these Christians had lost their desire for Jesus and they had lost their love for people. And Jesus says, when I see your indifference to the needs of others and your mild, tepid response to my kind of love for you, I feel the way you feel when you drink that water. I feel the way you feel when you scoop down and try to drink that white mud. It's nauseating. Well, why are they lukewarm? Well, look at verse 17. Here's why they are lukewarm. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. This is the the biggest danger of, of wealth and of riches and of just living in the wealthiest nation in the world is that you can start to take on that attitude of, I need nothing. And that's exactly where they're at. I'm rich. I prospered and I need nothing. So really their, the problem is that they're ignorant. Their pride has blinded them to their real condition. They really are in need of God and they just don't know it. They've, they've been blinded because They feel like, well, I'm self-sufficient. And he goes on to say, not realizing, not being aware that you are wretched, pitiable, poor. I mean, this this wealthy city, he's saying you're poor, blind, and naked. And what's interesting about this is, is Jesus is saying, you think you're rich. You think you've prospered, but you're, you're pitiable. You're pitiable compared to some of these other churches where they are poverty-stricken but faithful. And he says, uh, you have banks everywhere, but you're poor. You are world-renowned for medical schools. And, and, and one school in particular made this eye salve that was really had healing elements for your eyes. And he says, you're blind. You're world-renowned for this ability to help people see and All the while, you're blind. Here, a city famous for clothing industry and fashion, Jesus says, you're naked. 
See, what Laodicea was sickened by is kind of the contemporary diagnosis that we would probably call affluenza. Anybody heard that phrase, affluenza? Here's how one person describes it. Affluenza is an unhappy condition, unhappy condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting in the dogged pursuit of more. You know, if you have the effects of affluenza, if it's more, if it's just a little bit more, a little bit more money, a little bit more anxiety, a little bit more overload, a little bit more debt, and you just spin your wheels into this unhappiness and you start to feel like, I don't, I don't need anything. And I certainly don't need God. Not right now. I can't imagine squeezing him into my schedule. I can't imagine one more demand from my life, one more added thing to the calendar. I can't imagine asking God into my life in a significant way. You start to say, I'll just do the church attendance thing. I'll sign up for a few things, but I'm really not going to be overly dependent upon God because I just can't squeeze him in. I've got other things going on. Now, we got to be careful here because this, this church could be potentially thanking God for all of their wealth and all of their self-sufficiency. It's possible to be in a place of saying, God, I thank you for all of these things, but not necessarily needing God or expressing faith and trust in God and maybe not desiring God. It's possible to thank God. And not need God. Jesus said it this way. We have this verse up on the screen. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners. Unjust. Adulterers. And he looks over at this tax collector or even like this tax collector. So he just turns his nose and looks down at this guy. He says, I fast twice a week. You know, I give tithes of all I get. So he's very aware of God's blessing on his life. He's very aware of his performance before God. And he thanks God. He's thanking God. God, I thank you for all those kinds of things. But he's not necessarily needing God. And Jesus says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So it's possible to say, God, I I thank you that I'm rich, and I thank you that I've prospered, and I thank you that I need nothing. I thank you that I don't need you. I thank you, God, that I don't need you anymore. That's probably what the Laodiceans are doing. 
let's ask ourselves this question. What do you not really need God for? You just look around and say, man, I, I might be thanking God for this, but I'm not needing God for this. Wherever that is, we're probably blind and probably pitiable in that area because we need him. We need God. Who do you thank God that you're not like? The opportunities, the people, the relationships, the neighbors, the coworkers, the family members. That you maybe say, I thank you, God. I'm not like that person. And with that attitude, you would have refreshing water for them or you would have hot healing water for them. But you're busy thanking God that you're not like them. And so maybe you don't ask God to help you love them. We've all got people like that. Well, Jesus warns. And he goes on from warning to speaking words of counsel, starting in verse 18. Jesus counsels them. And this is really good news that he doesn't just stop at the warning. He moves on. He says, I counsel you. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. So again, he's, he's showing it right into their face. He's taking this whole image that they have of themselves of being super rich and self-sufficient. And he says, you know what? Because you're poor, you need to buy some things from me so that you may become rich. You really want to be rich. You're really glad that you're rich, but you ain't rich. And so you need to come buy from me gold that's refined by fire, unlike the gold that you have stored up in your banks, so that maybe you'll become rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Now, that's, that's a powerful punch of a word that they've got shame and they've got nakedness, but it's just as quickly a promise that that nakedness may not be seen for those who take hold of Jesus and clothe themselves with his white garments. And salve to anoint your eyes. He speaks right to the medicine that this city is so popular for, this eye salve. He says, you need salve. Like, no, we got salve. It's all over the place. Like people are coming from all over the world to buy our salve. And he says, you, you don't have it. You don't have the eye medicine that you need because you're blind. But I do. So Jesus is counseling this church and saying, I'm a better bank I've got refined gold that moth and rust can't touch. I'm better clothing. I'm able to turn your scarlet sin that I can see into clothing that's white as snow. And I'm better eye medicine so that you can see God, so you can see the beauty of God and see the love of God and see the glory of God. So notice he's not advocating self-denial. He's advocating true riches. 
He says, I want you to be really rich, spiritually rich. And I want you to be clothed and I want you to see what you, what you can't see. Now, this is just an echo of Isaiah 55, where the prophet wrote these words of God. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. This is, this is God. I am pure delight. I am the richest of food. Come and eat what is good and delight yourself in me. I know you're thirsty and I know you're broke. So come and buy what you can't pay for with money and with your currency. Come and take hold of real life and what really satisfies. Well, why does Jesus warn and counsel them this way? Well, look at verse 19. Look at verse 19. You've got to connect verse 19 with verse 16. Because if you just thought of Jesus, the image of Jesus spewing them out of their mouth, you're like, what, what heart is there? Is there a heart there? Well, he says in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. These threats and these warnings to the church in Laodicea are not the absence of his love or the feelings of indifference. You see, they feel indifferent about God but God does not feel indifferent about them. These threats and these warnings are proof of his lack of indifference. He is not indifferent at all. He is passionate about his bride. Praise God that the groom is not like the bride. The groom loves the bride, even when the bride has been indifferent. So he says, be zealous and repent. Change your thinking. You don't have to keep doing the same things you've done. You don't have to think the same way that you've been thinking. Rise up. Get up. Be zealous. And repent. Turn. Change. Well, how do you do that? Well, he, he stacks on promises here from verses 20 through 22, lest we think, I mean, how do I do that? How do I do, how do I turn? Is there anything on the other side of my turning that's really worth it? Well, look at verse 20. He says, behold, that means pause and sit up and listen up. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Notice who's taking the initiative. Notice who's standing when we're sitting. Notice who's standing when we're sleeping. Notice who's knocking. Notice who's taking the initiative here. He says, I am. I stand at the door and knock. He's speaking to the whole church here. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will. Note, notice these promises. Come into him 
and eat with him and he with me. He's saying there's a, a current reality of an experience with God that you're not currently having. You don't currently have this Laodiceans. That's why I'm offering it to you in this promise. A current hope. You open this door and you're going to experience fellowship with me in a way you're currently not. And then he goes on in verse 21. Blows our minds. The one who conquers, that's the same person who opens the door. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Here, a church that's in danger of being spewed out is being offered a place of inheritance. On my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what door is Jesus standing and knocking at? Sometimes you might have heard this, this passage used almost entirely evangelistically. Like the door is the door of unbelievers. And Jesus is saying, if you're an unbeliever, open up that door and I'll, I'll come in. Well, it's not just the door of unbelievers to put their faith in Christ for the very first time, although that's true. If you are hearing the voice of Jesus and you've never put your faith in Jesus, this is true for you. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You can take hold of that promise and say, he's speaking to me and I've maybe run from him. My whole life I've run from him. But you can believe and you can take hold of that promise and he will come into you and eat with you and be, be friends with you and restore a relationship with God. And that all happens by faith, by trusting him. But it, this isn't just speaking to unbelievers. This is speaking to believers, the Laodicean church. And this door is the door of lukewarm believers who had excluded Jesus from their personal lives. And that's made them ineffective in loving others and being a witness to the world. And here's what he says. If anyone in that church, anyone, because the assumption here is that there's somebody who's hearing this in Laodicea. And maybe the whole church doesn't do this corporately. Maybe the whole church doesn't respond like they're supposed to, to respond. But Jesus says, if you respond. I mean, you wonder, well, how does revival happen? How does it spark? How does a revival start among a people or among a movement or among a nation or among a city? Well, it starts with one person any one person opening the door and Jesus coming in in a new, fresh way into that one person and then another person opening the door and then another person opening the door and then another person opening the door. And before long, you've got a church that was Laodicea and self-sufficient and not caring about God and indifferent towards the people around them suddenly on fire, whole new reputation, whole new level of faithfulness and whole new joy. 
Well, he says, there's a current experience of my love and there's a future inheritance with God for those who conquer by opening, by opening up the door. Well, earlier I asked, what do you do if you're tired of coming to God? Is there any hope for that? How do you do this? How do you open the door when you hear him knocking? Well, I want to close with this. It's devastatingly simple. And it's right here in the text. It's incredibly simple. It's so simple we can miss it. We're looking for something deep or profound. While Jesus is saying, get zealous, repent, and open the door. The image is like we're, we're sitting on the couch, turned this way, and we hear the door Somebody's at the door. I mean, this literally happened to me the other day. It was at a certain time of the evening, and I was going, man, who's knocking at the door? And I told my wife, who's at the door? And she said, I don't know. (laughs) Go answer the door. So I got up, grumpy, put a happy face on, walked over to the door, didn't even look through the peephole. I I gave myself some spiritual points because I didn't do that. (laughs) And opened the door. And and, and they weren't friends. Friends had come over. Friends had come over with food. So now I'm feeling really bad. And they came in, and we had fellowship, and we had laughter, and we had joy, and we had cupcakes, and we, we talked, and we had a great time. And that's what Jesus is saying here. It's so simple you could miss it. I'm taking the initiative. I'm knocking at the door. You got to get up. You got to walk over. You got to turn around. Change your thinking. Stop thinking on the other side of that door is misery or burden and start thinking on the other side of that door is refreshing life and intimacy and joy and fellowship and help and mercy and grace. But I got to open up the door. I got to put my faith in that kind of God and trust him. So we're going to close by doing this together. If you don't mind standing, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing together. And it's just appropriate that to the, to the amen, to the faithful and true witness who knows our works in the same way that he knew the Laodiceans, that it's appropriate that we respond to him and we say, we say yes to him. And we open up the door of our hearts to him. I want to close with this, with this quote from an author named John Piper. He says it this way. He says, All the dealings of lukewarm Christians, all they have with Christ, are business-like lukewarm dealings with a salesman on the porch. But Christ did not die to redeem a bride who would keep him on the porch while she watched television in the den. His will for the church is that we open the door 
all the doors of our life. He wants to join you in the dining room. Spread a meal out for you and eat with you and talk with you. The opposite of lukewarmness is the fervor you experience when you enjoy a candlelit dinner with Jesus Christ in the innermost room of your heart. And when Jesus Christ, the source of all God's creation, is dining with you in your heart, then you have all the gold, all the garments, and all the medicine in the world. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.